subject coming as it does on the last Lord's Day of 2007. I trust we've all learned so much regarding how to take care of one another in the so-called gray areas of the Christian life and that we can now move into 2008 with a renewed sense of joyously getting along with one another, both in the areas where Scripture speaks so clearly and yet also how to bear with one another where Scripture doesn't speak so definitively. I've mentioned the following to you before, but it bears repeating again, given the overall context of this last subsection of Romans 15, verses 7 to 13, which we'll endeavor to cover this morning, and that is this. Learning to get along with the Christian brothers and sisters which made up the church in Rome was a huge undertaking. The church was made up of mainly Gentile believers, but the church had a smaller percentage of Jewish Christians. And historically, these two races of people, apart from their faith in Christ, had very hostile relations with each other. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul called their relationship outside of Christ in Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 16. Don't turn there, but listen to how Paul graphically illustrated the hostility between Jews and Gentiles of that day. He says, For he himself, referring to Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He actually uses that word twice, hostility. Tacitus, the historian who lived from A.D. 22 through 150, claimed the Jews, quote, regard the rest of mankind with all the hatred of enemies. And of course, the Gentiles hated the Jews in return. And so the early church had no small problem in attempting to get along with one another. Into that hostility of relationship, yes, it is true that the lordship of Jesus Christ over His church would come into prominence, no doubt. But it doesn't automatically mean that all the prejudices have all immediately vanished away. Not at all. And I would say for us today, the church must learn, and sometimes through very painful lessons in our respective sanctifications to get along with one another, even though from varied backgrounds and different ideas and different formulations on how to exactly live the Christian life, especially in areas where Scripture does not speak so definitively like these gray areas we've been talking about. 
And it is to this very area which the Apostle Paul speaks in Romans 14 and 15. And I would add that it is to this very specific matter of gray areas in this Jewish-Gentile-Christian-Church relationship that Paul speaks in Romans 15, verses 7 to 13. Follow along with me as I read. Romans 15, 7 to 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. As a faithful pastor, Paul takes one last opportunity to exhort the congregation in Rome to live in harmony with one another. Just as he did in verse 1 of chapter 15, which we covered two weeks ago. In fact, it's amazing to me how similar in structure verses 7 to 13 are when compared to verses 1 to 6 of this same chapter. They could actually be outlined in profoundly similar ways. For instance, each passage starts out with an exhortative command. Verse 1 says that the strong Christians ought to bear with the weak-faithed Christians, while verse 7 says that the congregation ought to welcome one another into the fellowship and the life of the body. Further, each passage immediately gives Jesus the Christ as the supreme example. In verses 1 and 2, He's said to be the example as the one who pleased all others rather than Himself. While in verses 7 and 8, Christ is said to be the one who has welcomed us into His body for God's glory and who became the servant, the supreme servant to both Jews and Gentiles through His death on the cross. Very similar. Verses 3 and 4 of Romans 15 speak about the Old Testament Scriptures which buttresses Paul's point being made there. And in verses 9 to 12, he also uses Old Testament Scripture to prove the point he's making here. And in the last section of each of these passages, verses 5 and 6 of Romans 15 give a prayer hope a prayer desire of Paul toward the believers in Rome. And in verse 13, he prays again, very similarly. And so, I think we could similarly, as we did before, outline this text in very, very likable ways. Even though this time, instead of using P's, I'll use S's, okay? I'll use S's. Here they are. 
Four outline points. Number one, the satisfactory summons to our duty. The satisfactory summons to our duty. And what duty is that? To be unified. That's verse 7. The satisfactory summons to our unity. That's our duty. And then in verse 8 and the first part of verse 9, the second outline point is the supreme servant of our unity. Our duty to be unified in the body. Looking again at Christ. And then thirdly, the scriptural support for our unity, this duty that we have. The latter part of verse 9 all the way through verse 12. And then fourthly and lastly, the salutary source in our unity. Verse 13. The satisfactory summons to our unity, the supreme servant of our unity, the scriptural support for our unity, and the salutary source in our unity. A most awesome text of Scripture about our relationship to each other. Again, given our backgrounds and our differences, Paul gives us a word just as assuredly as he does to the Roman church. Let's look at the first outline point, the satisfactory summons. Really, all of the outline points branch off of this one because this is the command. This is what Paul commands them to do. You say, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is, this is what he's telling all of us to do, because this is what he told the Romans to do. Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, some Bible teachers look at that particular word, therefore, and they ask the question, how much of the sweep of what he has said before is contained in that word, therefore. Some Bible teachers say that that therefore, since it's the end of this subsection, which has been a major section in Paul's letter, and just prior now to the beginning of the last major subsection, the therefore probably sweeps all the way back to something like Romans 9. So is the therefore, therefore, to sweep all the way back to Romans 9? I don't think so. Even though... You could make a case for it. Some of them say, no, the therefore links all the way back, not to Romans 9, 10, and 11, but the beginning of the so-called practical section, Romans 12, 1. And it hearkens us back to the idea of this is how we're supposed to behave in the church given all of the theology that Paul has expounded in Romans 1 to 11. And that's a possibility. Yet I favor the idea that the therefore is actually therefore linking us not to those two overall contexts, Romans 9 to 11, or even Romans 12, 1, all the way to chapter 14, but I think it really has to do principally now with the gray areas, and so the therefore links us up with chapter 14, verse 1, all the way through to where we are now. Just that one last little section. And I say that because... Notice what Paul says, therefore, welcome one another, which is something that he has said very clearly in chapter 14, verse 1, very, very clearly. He tells us to welcome each other in chapter 14, verse 1, and he's telling us to welcome one another now. Different motivations, different reasons, but nonetheless, he's telling us, this is what I want you 
to do. So he closes this section by commanding again that the Jewish and Gentile Christians must be welcoming toward one another. And that's what Paul would have us to do with ourselves. We are to be welcoming one another in the fellowship and in the life of the body of Christ here at BCLR. Why? Why is that so important? Why is that so incredibly important? Well, I could think of a lot of reasons, but I think the most important is this. Isn't this the most satisfactory way for us to show the pagan world the love of Christ? I mean, when you think about it, all of the varied backgrounds, and maybe even in our 21st century context, there are more complexities than even they may have had there. In the world known at that time, there were two so-called races of people or people groups, Jews and non-Jews. For us, the peoples of the world are possibly even more complex. It may even be true that our backgrounds, not just our races, our skin color, but our ethnicities, as the world has become far wider in scope and far more complex, and all of the challenges and issues of our getting along on this globe, maybe the challenge is greater for us. Because we bring all of that baggage into the church. We bring all of those ideas and all of those commitments and all of those thoughts and all of those backgrounds and all of those prejudices with us right into the church. And with all that complexity, when the church acts like the church is supposed to be, the pagan world, the unbelieving world, the sinful world around us should take notice, should Sit up and listen because even though we have all kinds of backgrounds and especially with regard to the gray areas of the Christian life, we are at one on this idea that Jesus Christ is Lord and that His Word is authoritative and that we will be obedient to it. And even in these areas where we might differ and where there might otherwise be disputes outside of this place, there isn't here because we love one another. Because we want to welcome one another. Because we want to show the world that even though we still maintain that there are areas of gray, not black or white, not either commended in Scripture or condemned by Scripture, there are nevertheless opinions and sometimes even the challenge of disputes among us about how to live the life that God has for us, but we will do so in a way that will be agreeable even when we disagree. We therefore will be welcoming toward one another. And then when you add that Paul says there's a certain group called by him the strong and they're willing to give up their liberties for the sake of bearing with the weak in their faith, that's a very powerful testimony for the gospel. Because as you know, the world stomps on one another to purport their own ideas. They'll climb the ladder of so-called success and they don't really care about whose fingers they step on when they're climbing and they'll want to debate and they'll want to quarrel over their opinions believing that their opinions are right and when you come into the church here is rather a group of people 
who possibly haven't even given up on some of those very opinions and ideas about how to live life, but because we're Christians, because we live under the banner of Jesus Christ and His Lordship, even in the areas where Scripture does not speak so definitively, we will rather give up certain liberties for the sake of our less mature, our weak in faith brethren, so that they might mature and grow. And that's a powerful testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're willing to give up certain things that are neither commended nor condemned by Scripture, and yet you're eager to do so for those who are less mature than yourself, you're a powerful testimony to the gospel of the grace of God. And that's what he's attempting to get them to see. Indeed, if that's you, he goes on to say here in verse 7, you are like your Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, because, notice what he says here in verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You know what the implication of that is? Look, if Christ has welcomed you with all that you are, why can't you welcome one another with all that they are? If He's received you, and yet He knows who you are and all of your thoughts and attitudes and opinions and prejudices, and yet He died for you, and therefore He welcomed you into His body, the church, then shouldn't you welcome one another with all of their differences? Jesus has given His life away for the sake of welcoming an incredibly diverse set of people, then can't you be okay with people who are diverse from yourself? Remember his exhortation in chapter 14, verse 1? As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. That's why I link all of this up together in this little subsection. Welcome him, 14.1. Welcome him, 15.7. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over his opinions. Verse 3 of chapter 14. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has what? Welcomed him. God has welcomed him. Christ has welcomed you. Ought you not also to welcome the others for your sake and for theirs? He's really saying we ought always and forever to be a welcoming people. A gracious, loving, welcoming people toward other Christians, regardless of their current state of maturity or background or non-biblical opinions, etc. And I want you to notice also for whom we are to welcome others within the body of Christ. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 7. For the glory of God. That's actually a purpose statement. It goes something like this. We should welcome one another as Christ, Christ Himself, has welcomed us for the express purpose of the glory of God. That's our motivation. That's our driving idea. That's our love. That's our passion, the glory of God. You see, it glorifies God when we welcome one another in the body of Christ. Just as Christ died on the cross for the glory of God. See, welcoming means loving others and bearing with each other and our differences. And we do this, Paul says, just as Christ did for the glory of God. That's the 
That's the satisfactory summons. That's, that's so satisfactory because Christ did it for us. He welcomed us. God welcomed us. We ought also in this summons to welcome others. And then secondly, again, just like verses 1 to 6, you want to see an example? Here's the supreme servant of unity. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. That's the Jews. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Paul says, I tell you this. That idea is, I declare to you, I'm authoritatively telling you something emphatically that Christ became a servant both to the Jews, that's the meaning of the term, the circumcised, and the Gentiles. He became a servant to both. One, so that He could show His truthfulness that He always keeps His promises. And He used Christ in this instance to die on the cross so that that promise to the patriarchs in the original day would be fulfilled that God is a truth teller and He will keep His promises. He promised Abraham that He would do it. And He even promised Abraham, and through your seed I'll bless all the nations, not just the Jews, all the nations, And this promise is coming to pass. God is a promise keeper. And He'll keep His promises both to the Jews, the circumcised, and to the Gentiles so that they might glorify God. There it is again. For His mercy. He's the supreme example. Verse 3 says He didn't please Himself. And according here to verse 8, He's also the supreme servant. He became, it says a servant to both races. We would say it like this today. He became a servant to all the nations, including the Jews and all of the pagan nations outside of the house of Israel. He's the supreme example, verse 3. He's the supreme servant to all unity. Christ has done it for us. Isn't that exactly what he says in Mark ten forty-five? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Supreme servant. And you know, at this point, maybe some of the Jews in the church, not really understanding both theologically and experientially all that Paul is talking about here, might themselves, because of their heritage, because of their background, they might object and say, no, not the pagans. There's hostility between us and them. Not the pagans, not the Gentiles. They're the ones who lord it over people. And they're they're the ones who are without God. And they're the ones who are Christless. They're the ones who don't love you, Yahweh. Not them. And that wouldn't be true, would it? You can look all the way back. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. This has been clearly stated by Paul all the way through this letter, and of course, as we'll see in a moment, all the way through the Old Testament. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Speaking of, again, this Jew-Gentile issue. He's finished the end of chapter 2 talking about the Gentiles. Now he comes back to the idea, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What's his answer? By no means. God's going to keep his promises to the Jews. Yes, he will. But notice verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, not just the Jews. Yes, they had an advantage because they had the oracles of God. Yes, they were advantaged in every way. They were God's covenant people, and you could become very proud of something like that. And you could become very disdainful of the people who were non-Jews around you. And you could become a hatred, a, a, a hating of those people. There would be a hatred in your heart toward them. And he's saying in verse 22, it is for all who believe. And then notice this, verse 22, for there is no distinction. Distinction in what way? In the races. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And implied, all All who would ever believe, Jew or Gentile, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 29. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. It's all a matter of faith in Christ who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. This shouldn't be a shock to them. He said it very clearly. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, Jew and Gentile, in the church in Rome. And it will be counted to us... Jew or Gentile, who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Jew and Gentile. Romans chapter 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Yes, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Yes, God is going to fulfill His promises to the ones in whom the promises were made. The Jews, no question about it. But you come over to chapter 11, and you look at verse 1. Has God rejected His people? By no means. I'm one myself, and God hasn't rejected them whom He has foreknown. Verse 5. There is a remnant of those Jews chosen by grace. So someone's going to ask, why did they stumble? Verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to whom? The Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Verse 26, and in this way, through this Jealousy and this partial hardening, all Israel, that is, all the Israel that God has foreknown, elected, will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Don't for one minute think that God 
has finished with the Jews. He has not. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And maybe a Jew up to that point in his hearing of this letter would say, Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. The elect of the house of Israel will come in. But what about the Gentiles? What about the Gentiles? And we come to the the third outline point, the scriptural support for this unity of Jews and Gentiles in the faith. Notice what Paul says in the latter part of verse 9 of chapter 15. As it is written, here's the answer. What will be the answer of the Jews about the Gentiles? Here's what Paul says. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, it being Scripture, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His Jewish people. And again, praise the Lord, all you as Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Got your answer. In four successive Old Testament quotations, yes, and the Gentiles also. All of the elect of all of the ages, both Jew and Gentile. You say, why does he quote four Old Testament passages in a row? Well, he's like me. He wants to repeat himself. He wants to say, into hearts that have a hard time believing such things, that the Gentiles are in. And I think he does it for another wonderful way, and it is this. You've sometimes heard about the Old Testament that it's divided into portions or subsections for ease of reference, and that is true. Sometimes divided up maybe into four categories, sometimes into three, and those three categories are often said to be the law, the writings, and the prophets, right? And I think what Paul is doing implicitly here is he's saying, I'm telling you that it was always the plan of God, always in the sovereign mercy of God to dispense that mercy to the Gentiles. It's always been that way. And I'm going to show you, Jews, from your own Old Testament Scripture, from all of the sections of your Old Testament, that it was always God's plan. And that's exactly what he does. Notice, by the way, the first Old Testament quotation, probably from... Psalms, or maybe 2 Samuel 22.50. You don't have to turn there for time's sake, but here's what Paul does. He quotes 2 Samuel 22.50. And by the way, it starts out, does 2 Samuel 22, with the text saying this, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And you would assume then that a Jew would read something like that and say, Yes, sir, the Lord delivered King David from all of those pagan enemies. So why is Paul then quoting this in a reference to those enemies getting saved? He does it because verse 50 of 2 Samuel 22 says it this way, For this I will praise you, O Lord, David says, among the nations and sing praises to your name. David knew that. David knew that the plan was always to include out of the pagan nations a people who would praise the name of Yahweh. 
Always. That was always the plan. So he quotes here, same thing, by the way, Psalm 1849, which may actually be the first referent that Paul had in mind. For this, David says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing your name. Virtually synonymous with 2 Samuel 22. So he quotes from the chronicle of history, the historical record, or the wisdom literature, commonly called together the writings. And then now, look at Romans 15.11. Paul quotes from Psalm 117.1. Just skip a verse. Go to verse 11. He says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. Psalm 117.1. Again, a reference right out of the, the writings, the wisdom literature. Two references here in the Psalms to the idea that God has a plan For the non-Jews, he has a plan. He has a sovereign plan to dispense his mercy even to the Gentiles. This is a portion from the writings. He says, from your own writings, from my writings, from that which I read daily. Now go back to verse 10 of Romans 15. Listen to the next Old Testament quotation. This one coming to us from the law portion of the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 32.43. Rejoice with Him, O heavens. Deuteronomy 32.43 says, Bow down to Him, O nations. All the way back in Deuteronomy. Bow down, O nations. That's what the marginal translation of the ESV says. And it's a good one. It was always the intention of the Lord to have all the nations of the earth praise Him and even the law portion of the Old Testament fulfills that very idea. And then look at the last Old Testament quotation in Romans 15:12. Comes to us from the section we would call the prophets. The prophets. And Paul here quotes very closely the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. That's probably what he predominantly used including the Hebrew text and his point is Isaiah 11:10, here's what it says in the Septuagint, the root of Jesse will come Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So whether you're talking about the prophets or the law or the writings, Paul says, I can quote at least one or two verses out of every one of those. And believe you me, there are more besides. I'm telling you, it was always the plan of God. You don't have to be concerned at all. You don't have to question. God always had a sovereign plan to include very diverse peoples in the body of Christ. Always. You say, well, what about those verses like Romans 1 that says, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile? Doesn't that sound like partiality? No. Well, what about those verses where Jesus says He's only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Doesn't that sound partial? No. You have to allow for what theologians call the progress of redemption. It's the idea that God came to the Jews. They rejected Him. God goes to those non-Jews. He says about that banquet, go into the highways and byways and compel all of them to come in. You say, what's going on here? Don't think that when Scripture says something like that, it means that there's partiality with God. God always had a plan. But the progress of that plan first came to the Jews. They were first entrusted with those oracles. 
They rejected Messiah. Messiah went to all of those in the environs. He even grew up in Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus supped with, fellowshiped with those who were non-Jews. He talked to a woman at the well. It was always the plan of God. It included men and women and children and tribes and tongues and peoples from faraway lands. Don't think for one moment that God had some kind of plan A and when that didn't work out, He went to a plan B. Paul says, I can show you all the way back in Deuteronomy and through the writings and through the prophets that God always had this plan. And you know what His point is in quoting all of it? You better learn how to get along with one another in the church because we're all going to be in there to some level, to some degree, with all of our levels of maturation and backgrounds and prejudices and ideas and opinions. And we better learn how to get along with one another. And then, just as he did before in verses 1 to 6, he brings his prayer hope, his prayer wish, his prayer desire. And the final outline point, the salutary source in his unity. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope, since he's just talked about in whose hope the Gentiles will have, the God of the Jews, Yahweh, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Believing in Christ. That's the, that's the black and white. That's what you must do. You must believe in Christ. And when you do, you'll have all joy and all peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Joy, peace, and hope. Sounds similar, doesn't it, to Romans fourteen seventeen, when he says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see... My friends, differences of opinion among believers in the fellowship and our fighting and our bickering over them are to be jettisoned in favor of joy and peace. And we can do it. We can do it when we trust in the God of hope who through the powerful Holy Spirit can change us from the inside out so that we are overflowing with joy, filled with joy and overflowing in our experience of peace. That's the absence of conflict. That's what that means. It's not some kind of peace where someone says, I've got a peace about it. It's not what it's talking about. It's a peace meaning the absence of conflict in the church, even with your differing opinions, and that we can abound in hope. And the only way that will happen is through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't crank that up on your own. I can't do that. It's only by the abounding hope and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this entire series on the last day of 2007 with a self-examination at the very Lord's table. I want you to bow your heads with me. As you bow your heads, I want to ask you as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, do you focus your attention on winning points of contention about debated matters between yourself and others in the fellowship, especially in these gray areas? 
Do you desire to flaunt your liberties? Or do you desire to relinquish them for the sake of greater peace? I assume if Paul were here, he'd say, are you more concerned about eating and drinking or whatever other areas of difference than righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't you rather desire to be filled by the God of hope? To abound in that hope? To be filled with joy and the absence of conflict because you believe in Christ and the Gospel? than to fight and argue over matters indifferent? Oh, let us all confess our sins to the Lord as we partake of this His Supper, this perpetual ordinance in the church that allows us to be living in harmony with one another. Oh, Lord, I pray, we would live in harmony with one another.